Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our brief series looking at the imprecatory psalms. In last week's episode, we covered the different categories of psalms and whether or not that is useful. And here we're going to be discussing cursing and imprecations, specifically whether cursing and imprecations do something, and whether we can still speak curses and imprecations today. Please check out those show notes for all things Theopolis. There's links there to our YouTube channel. We're right now beginning to wind down our ongoing video series, Walking Through the Book of Revelation with Peter Lightheart. We think that'll be very useful for you. And we also have links there to our newly released Theopolis Liturgy and Psalter and the Theopolis Fundamentals book series as well. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation. We want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Trevor Lawrence, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing cursing and imprecations. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and our special guest, Trevor Lawrence of the Cataclasia Institute. Jeff Myers, another usual member of the group, is uh, at a conference today when we're recording and uh, will rejoin us uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, we're grateful for him to be running the recording and to make sure that everything gets finished off and edited and smoothed over. Uh, Last episode, we started a series of studies in the imprecatory psalms. We're devoting about a month's worth of podcasts to that topic. Uh, And in the last episode, we talked about genres of psalms, different sorts of psalms, and also uh, spent some time talking about the the overall shape and structure of the Psalter and and how it is put together as a a kind of review of the life of David, but also it gives a, a vision of a future David, a future Davidic king who will restore the Davidic dynasty, gather the nations, and uh, fill the world with praise. Today, we want to start moving into the specific topic of the imprecatory psalms. But instead of talking about the imprecatory psalms directly today, we're going to spend this episode talking about cursing and imprecations more generally. Uh, We'll get into the uh, specifics of the imprecatory psalms in the next few episodes. But cursing is is a phenomenon that's found in the Bible from early chapters, of course, of the Bible, when God curses the ground in relation to Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent. After the flood, Noah curses Ham and Canaan. And uh, curses are found throughout the Pentateuch in uh, settings of, uh, particularly in covenant settings, where the Lord enters into a covenant bond with his people and then promises them blessings if they hold to the covenant and threatens curses if they don't hold to the covenant. Uh, And uh, then Psalms of cursing uh, will be the focus of attention in uh, in our future episodes. One question that uh, comes up in discussions of cursing, both in scripture and just in general, the phenomenon of cursing in different cultures, is a question of whether the idea of a curse attributes a certain kind of magical power to language itself, that language has this kind of supernatural power that a curse pronounced is automatically uh, automatically brings disaster calamity on the person who's cursed. Whether that's the that's the kind of thing we're looking at, or whether we're thinking of instead of uh, curse as something more like a uh, an invocation of God, a prayer, uh, asking God to bring calamity on 
on someone or something on perhaps on ourselves in certain contexts. Thoughts about that that general question. Is there biblical evidence for saying that cursing has this kind of automatic power that it provides uh, you know it, it assumes a certain kind of supernatural view of the the capacities of language to accomplish what is said? I mean it, it wouldn't I guess be a, a supernatural um uh or sorry better put it wouldn't be something um intrinsic to the um, curse, which would obviously be independent of God. Um, and I guess to use um, blessing as an example, I mean, we could think of the um, uh, Isaac's blessing of Jacob as as opposed to Esau. And there's a, an irrevocable sense to it. You know, even when he wants to, he can't withdraw that blessing. And so there is clearly something um, performative about um blessing there and i assume the same would be true of cursing um but obviously nested within the context of god's sovereign purposes and and the way in which they're played out in in history on that front we could maybe think about the um statement in the blessings of the tribes and in the case of simeon and levi something that's more like a curse but in the case of simeon and levi it takes a different form um both of them received the same statement. But in the case of Levi, their scattering among the tribes involves the actual task of the priesthood. Um, in the case of Simeon, it's being consigned to an enclave within Judah. And I wonder whether there's a sense there that the words must hold. Um, this statement concerning these tribes will be brought to pass. But what seemed to be a curse could be turned into a blessing if it is responded to in the right way, if there is repentance. Um, and you can maybe see that in a number of other statements that we have in Scripture that can be fulfilled in positive or negative senses. Hmm. I think it can also be helpful to recognize the distinction between curses from God and curses attempted by human agents. When God curses the ground or the serpent, he is creating in his very speech the realities that he is naming. He is identifying the status of the ground and the serpent in relation to him now. Similarly, in a place like Deuteronomy 27, where it it is the, the word from the Lord that is stating Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. Cursed be anyone who takes advantage of the poor and needy. Cursed be anyone who lies under oath and comes forward as a malicious witness. God is establishing the the status of people who engage in those behaviors. He is marking them off from the covenant community in that very moment, but he is also setting a precedent moving forward. That in the future, should anyone engage in these types of anti-covenantal behaviors, they will be cursed, regarded by God as cursed, and subject to the judgment that the curse assumes. Yeah, that's helpful, Trevor. I think the, uh, to, to suggest a counter to that, I would, uh, there do seem to be places where human curses have this kind of power to uh, achieve something even in the distant future. I'm thinking of uh, uh, Joshua's curse against those anyone who would rebuild the city of Jericho. 
And then that curse is realized uh, in very specific ways when uh, during the during the time of Ahab, heal the Bethelite rebuilds Jericho. So there you have a human being uh, pronouncing a curse that has this kind of that seems to have this kind of performative or prophetic power that you're you're saying is uh, is part of the divine curse. We've seen examples in our study of the Book of Acts as well, um, the way that Paul speaks to Elymas the sorcerer, for instance. Um, or Peter to um, Simon the Sorcerer. One example that really stands out to me is that of Elijah. Elijah says that it's by his word that there will be no rain. It's not, he's not sent with a message from the Lord. This is something that he initiates. And in the book of James, we see he initiates it by prayer. But this is something that, a curse that he has called upon the people in appealing, as it were, to the covenant statement of the Lord. But in that case, it's not just the Lord bringing it directly. It's not a case of a human being bringing it purely by his own initiation. It's a human being praying fervently to the Lord. And as a result of that appeal to the covenant, bringing a curse to bear upon the people. Which is, in many sense, the essence of the the Old Testament prophet's ministry isn't it the specific application of general principles in the law to a given generation or or to a given uh, uh circumstance or, or or whatever but um obviously as you say always kind of within the context that these are that curses can't be um counter to what god has decreed and a, a dramatic example of that would be uh balaam so he is um summoned seemingly because he has this um ability just to curse um nations and to curse whoever he wants and he's kind of introduced as a uh, an anti-abraham um figure um it's sort of said to him by balak whom you bless is blessed whom you curse is is cursed but obviously he, he uh in israel and the god of israel he confronts um uh an immovable object as it were something which he, he can't just uh, manipulate to his ends. Yeah, the the connection between prophecy and cursing, I think, is uh, is is really important for understanding prophecy and for understanding how the how the covenant arrangements work out historically. Because uh, uh, I mean, as many have pointed out, a lot of the a lot of the prophets' uh, condemnations and warnings to Israel uh, amount to um, you know just kind of reading reading the the covenant curses of Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28 uh, out to Israel. You have broken covenant. You've followed other gods. You've shed innocent blood. Uh, and therefore, all these calamities that the Lord has already warned against are going to come come upon you. So there's, uh, there's an intimate link between the curses that uh, God warns against in, in the covenant treaties and the prophets who are kind of covenant spokesmen and warning the people that these curses are actually going to come on them. One of the common uses of curses seems to be curses that are used in in connections with oaths. Uh, and it's uh, been common for uh, biblical scholars to speak of oaths as self-maledictions, that you take an oath, may God do to me and more also if, uh, if I don't perform what I'm saying. Uh, that is, uh, may God's curses fall upon me if I don't carry out what the Lord is, what I've promised to do. Uh, and then there are uh, some passages that have been interpreted as the Lord entering into that 
that status, uh, that position as being calling down uh, self-maledictions. The uh, covenant uh, sealing event in Genesis 15 has often been read this way, where the, the animal pieces are spread and there's a pathway between, and the Lord pass, passes between the pieces of the animal. And he's swearing an oath that he's going to give the land to Abraham. But the oath is buttressed by this uh, self-malediction that God himself takes on him. Uh, God takes on himself. Uh, may I be cursed. May I suffer my own curses if I don't fulfill this. It's a, it's a way of reinforcing the, the reliability of that, of that promise. There's an element of that in the covenant curses at the end of Deuteronomy as well. After each recitation of the curse, all the people of Israel say, Amen. Let it be. Uh, we see it also in uh, some of the Psalms, that the psalm, psalmist will say, uh, as he's lamenting the activities of an enemy or the accusations of an enemy, he will say, if any of this is true, if I have done any of this, Lord, let the judgment befall me. And so whether it's in the covenant-making uh, scenario or in the psalmist's own declarations of innocence and pleas for divine in- intervention, I-, I think that element of self-malediction, of calling on God as a witness who will act if faithfulness is not upheld, is it's, it's not only a powerful dimension of what's going on in the moment, but it, it establishes a performative dimension going forward. Mm-hmm. If someone takes up the prayer of the psalmist in, I think it's a, a psalm like Psalm 7, and says those words, even today, we are, in a sense, committing ourselves, invoking God's action to reveal our falsehood if, in fact, we are false. Mm-hmm. And that becomes, in a communal setting, a powerful testimony to the authenticity of the words that are said. Only one who is telling the truth before God would dare invoke his judgment and activity on his own head in the event of lying. How would you distinguish, if at all, between curse and prayer? There seem to be two different kinds of speech act in scripture, but what is the difference and in what kind of setting would we do? Would we actually perform a curse rather than pray for God to deal with some enemy or some opposition? I think you're right that they are distinguishable speech acts. One, we can think about the direction of speech. Uh, Curses seem to be aimed directly at enemies. Cursed be you, uh, or a pox upon your house, or may suffering befall you. Even if God is invoked, either explicitly or in the background, it's speech from the cursing agent toward the enemy. Whereas prayer, of course, is speech about the enemy toward God. I think it's also helpful to to parse out what each speech act is trying to do, uh, even if we don't ascribe some sort of automatic or magical quality to the power of words. A curse is a speech act that seeks to effect a certain reality. It seeks to pronounce uh, something that will be true going forward in the future. Whereas imprecation in in the Psalms in particular is a mode of prayer, supplication. It is petition to God that is not 
effecting a reality so much as pleading to the king and judge of all reality to do what is right. The difference between the direction of the Speech Act, I think, brings into view another aspect of um, the act of cursing, that where the petitionary element is more clear, for instance, a a prayer to the Lord to um, break the enemy's, the teeth of the enemy, for instance, um, that has a different character to the statement, for instance, of Paul to Elymas the sorcerer, which is a very direct claim made towards him under the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I think comes into focus there is the aspect of authorization, that the prophet has the authorization and the power of the word of the Lord that comes through him, that he is an actual channel of that in the same way as the Lord speaks to Jeremiah in his call and says that he will build up and tear down, that he will uproot and plant nations, that it's not just a matter of Jeremiah being the messenger boy of the Lord. Jeremiah's own words are authorized um, by the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that is a crucial question. You think of the the situation that James mentioned, Isaac blessing his sons, blessing Isaac, uh, Isaac blessing Jacob, it's a, a father to a son. Noah is in a position of authority when he curses. So you have those kinds of settings. You also have the kind of the inver- inverse of that, in, and particularly in the Psalms, maybe, where curses are uttered or prayers for cursing, are at least, are, uh, are spoken uh, from a position of weakness. So uh, cursing becomes a kind of last resort of the, of the downtrodden. Um, David is a poor uh, and needy one. When he's on the run from Saul, uh, he doesn't. He's not in a position of power. He's displaced from his home. He's uh, he's uh, lost all his standing in Israel, and so from that position, he's calling on the Lord to deal with his enemies. So the, the, there's an authorization from above, as it were. But there's also there also seems to be a I don't know if we want to call it authorization, but uh, cursing as a weapon of the weak. Mm. That's an interesting observation because it can put a bit more context in uh, around um, Joshua's cursing of Jericho. So this wasn't just some random guy putting a, a hex on a particular city. He had conquered um, Jericho as God's appointed agent of destruction. And then there was therefore a sense of, I don't know if you call it ownership, but certainly authority um, over its rebuilding. And, and so that sense of authorization seems present there. And the flip side of that in the case of Joshua is um, the extension of the day that he speaks with an immense authority in that case. The Lord listens to him in not just a statement expressed in the form of a petition, um, but there's a pronouncement that this should be the case. And there's something about prophetic speech in the case of Joshua, in the case of Elijah, and a number of other cases where the prophet seems to have an authorized initiative that he can take, that the Lord has given to him. And that is, I think, quite significant in the case of cursing. Can maybe mm. think of Gehazi um, and Elisha here as well. Mm. 
and therefore you get examples in the New Testament, so recently in Acts, where is it the sons of Sceva who tries to drive out um, demons? They don't have that authority, um, which Paul does have, um, and hence they don't have that, I don't know if you'd call it cursing power exactly, but it's something quite akin to that. I think we also see that in the speech of Genesis 49, which is introduced with Jacob calling his sons around him so that he may tell them what is to come in the latter days, which is something of a technical phrase in the development of the Pentateuch uh, that uh, introduces prophetic speech about the future, about what God is going to do among his people. And so even there, there seems to be a kind of prophetic authorization by the patriarch to declare what shall be over his sons. Peter, I think your point about uh, imprecation or cursing uh, as an instrument of the weak is an interesting one. What what I think is fascinating is that the the cursing prayers are they are prayers. They are directed to God. They're not aimed at the enemy in the second person in the same way as some of these other uh, scriptural examples of cursing. But a close study of the content of those imprecatory psalms reveals that in all cases, the prayers are based on prior curses that God himself has made and prior covenantal promises about what he will do in the future. So I think if we call the imprecatory psalms cursing prayers, we we need to distinguish that they are prayers on the basis of God's prior curses. The, the psalmist is petitioning for judgment of a kind and toward the types of people that God has already committed himself to cursing. They're asking for the manifestation of God's curses in their own historical reality. Right. And so that's the basis for the kind of arguments that you get in the Psalms, uh, where the psalmist is pleading with God to to do as he said, to, to actually uh, fulfill, be faithful to the word that he's already spoken. I think it's also revealed in the types of designations that are used. So uh, David will say, malicious witnesses rise up against me. Well, in the law, malicious witnesses is a, a technical designation for people who have committed a particular offense against the community, an offense that merits a particular judgment from God. Even in Psalm 139, that is often so uh, searching and uh, emotionally engaging, there is an imprecation at the end that is accompanied by the statement that the wicked take your name in vain, O Lord. This is, of course, a reference to the third commandment where God himself promises that the Lord will not uh, refuse to judge those who take his name in vain. So even in the language that's used to introduce the offenses, we've got allusions and references to God's prior covenantal self-commitments that uh, demonstrate that, that God himself has already said this is to be the fate of these people. The psalmist is merely asking to see that fate actualized in his own experience. And this might be a helpful way to think about the 
authority that's given to the church in scripture, the authority to bind and to loose. Um, it's not a, a blank check that we can express whatever sentiment we want. Rather, there's an authorization by the word that we prosecute, as it were, the covenant in history and in our contexts. I think a great example of this is Elijah again, where we're told that he speaks this as something that will not end, saved by his word. It comes with his, he's the one that initiates this judgment. But it's initiated on the basis of something we don't hear within the text itself until James, where we're told that it's the fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. And Elijah's fervent prayer as a prophet of the Lord is that by which he can appeal for the curse of the covenant of a drought coming upon the people, as is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He can actually bring that to pass through appealing to the Lord to act according to his word. And in the same way, the church has been given a prophetic sort of authority where it is authorized by the word to prosecute it and to proclaim it with authorization, not just as a sort of messenger boy. And so the mechanism and the way of working there, again, has a parallel in blessing, doesn't it? And so you could think about Daniel's situation when he is saying, look, you promised if we found, find ourselves in this situation in a foreign land and, and um, abandoned and so on, then we could return and pray towards the, the temple. And so there is that um, uh, explicit pleading of um, what is at the time that Solomon makes it just a generic statement, um, but there is a, a an explicit pleading of it by by Daniel uh, for blessing, just as there is in in the case of cursing. Alistair cited uh, James a couple of times uh, talking about Elijah's prayer, but James also says uh, this is a brings up a larger question uh, in James chapter three. Uh, we can't tame the tongue; with it, we bless our Father. But with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. We've already uh, mentioned a couple of cases of cursing in the book of uh, the book of Acts. But James appears to forbid the use of cursing entirely. How would you harmonize not only James, but you, some people have taken Jesus' statements about oaths. You, you don't. Uh, as an absolute prohibition of oaths. And if it's an absolute prohibition of oaths, then you're not in a position to take those self-maledictions that we talked about. So how do you harmonize uh, those statements of the New Testament with this, both the Old Testament practice of cursing, and then even in the book of Acts, we see this come uh, come to the fore occasionally. Paul pronounces curses against uh, certain people in the letter to the Galatians. How do you harmonize those, those different uh, statements? I mean, I wonder if, Part of what we've got going on here is just different uh, uses of, of the term curse. And so um, Peter, for instance, um, he, he said, sorry, not, not you, Peter, um, the Apostle Peter, um, he said that he began to curse and swear um, when he was asked if he was one of Jesus' followers. And I, I wonder if that's the main sense in which James has in here, rather than the previous sense that we've been talking about when uh, uh, cursing is put upon one of God's enemies in, in line with a specific promise of God. Yes, that's typically the way that I've understood this as well, that we can talk about 
covenantal curses. We can talk about authorized curses that take God's word and apply it to a, a particular situation, in a sense, revealing the reality that already is. I think when we look at uh, the way Elemis is struck blind, uh, this, this is a case of a curse, in a sense, revealing what already is, uh, that Elemis's status before God and his future fate is being unfolded in the present in a way that can, in a sense, be considered merciful uh, because it's a, a revelation for him that he ought to take notice of. But there are, there are, I think, more informal ways of talking about cursing as well, which is simply invoking harm upon the neighbor. And in the context of James' discussion of the tongue and blessing our neighbor and cursing our neighbor, it seems that we've got a very different type of discourse from the authorized prophetic speech as an appointed agent of God. Uh, and what might be comparable to Shimei throwing stones and cursing David uh, in 2 Samuel 16, uh, someone who is invoking, even if from the Lord, uh, invoking harm directly against a neighbor for the purpose of seeing them uh, suffer and experience ill. I think the first thing to note when we're responding to something like this is that there does need to be an act of harmonization, that there are other, there are other texts that speak very clearly about the appropriate character of cursing. And so we can't just take one at the expense of the other there needs to be some reconciliation. And that's even within the book of James itself. So there's this um, statement about the way that we use the tongue or misuse it in that case. But then in chapter five, there's the discussion of the, the rich who must mourn and howl because of the destruction that's about to come upon them, the patience of the righteous, and the way that they must pray fervently like Elijah, who prayed and there was no rain for... Um, 43 and a half years, um, and then he prayed and there was rain again. That prayer is very clearly a, a prayer for a curse, for a judgment upon the people. So even within James itself, it's clear that whatever he means in chapter 2, it cannot be contrary or repugnant to what he says in chapter 5. We've talked about the authorization to pronounce curses or to pray for calamity. I'm thinking of... Uh, ways that that would be practically implemented in churches. We could discuss the legitimacy of that kind of prayer or that kind of pronouncement in more private settings, but it, just think about official church kind of settings. If the church has prophetic authority, then the church presumably has the authority to pronounce God's curses against God's enemies. And I think of a couple of settings in our contemporary world where that that kind of action seems appropriate. I mean, there are dozens of places around the world where uh, the church is uh, under severe persecution, uh, where the the bride of Christ is being uh, is being uh, uh, attacked. Uh, think of you know uh, certain parts of Nigeria where Boko Haram bands are kidnapping, forcing uh, Christian. Uh, young Christian girls into marriages to Muslim men. In that kind of setting, it seems like an appropriate thing for the church to officially and publicly pronounce curses against 
Boko Haram, I mean, the the, uh, Muslim group that's carrying out these atrocities, or ISIS uh, when they were, when they're publicly beheading people. So the kind of situations of persecution. The other setting I think about in, uh, in our, in our own cultures is uh, in our own polities is the situation of abortion, which is a, again, an attack on the helpless and the weak and uh, shedding of innocent blood. So we pray that abortion would end. That's something that we do regularly in uh, the church I attend and many, many churches throughout the U.S. and Europe and throughout the world, I'm sure. But then uh, it seems like that's an appropriate kind of setting where we would not just pray for an end to it, but we would, uh, the church would have the authority to pronounce curses against those who both carry out these murders and those who support them and give them legal authorization to do it. Uh, what do you think of that? I mean, what do we mean by having the authority there? Do we mean something we uh, it's appropriate for us to do on the basis of scripture or something we can do and and know for a fact what we are saying will pass i was thinking more the former although we we would do it in trust that the lord is um, the lord will be faithful to his curses as he is to his promises i think i would emphasize what is emphasized in in the psalms themselves the the churches and israel's liturgical book and major on the side of prayer. Uh, and if if we were to move to cursing language, um, I think I would remain in the in the place of declaring what God has already said. Cursed are those who do such things, uh, which is a, a statement that reveals the reality of what God has already said. It, it wouldn't necessarily take that sort of cursing agency into the hands of the church, uh, but would announce in a prophetic way what God has already promised is the case and will be the case. And when coupled with fervent imprecatory prayer, supplication for God to bring an end to the wickedness of the wicked, uh, I think we would be on safe biblical grounds in terms of following the pattern that is laid out for us liturgically in scripture. Mm-hmm. So something like the, the, the pronouncements, the curses of Deuteronomy 27, that's the kind of thing you're talking about as a, as a kind of liturgy of malediction. Yes. A, a recognition and revealing in speech of the status before God of those who commit such acts. I think we have been given the authority as the church to bind and to loose. And that is the authority of the authorization to wield the sword of the word of the Lord. And that to be wielded, not just as a declaration of what it says, but an application or um, a forceful presentation of, or presentation of the actual force of these words. These are not just things that we're, declaring God to have said. We're calling for him to act in terms of these, and we're declaring the authority of God's word directly. And that, I think, involves a willingness on occasions to declare judgment. Um, I think these are exceptional cases. Um, I think also, in the same way as we might think about the minister of the sword in terms of government, 
there are certain criteria that must be met for that to be effective. If someone's just establishing themselves on their own on their own basis as some sort of ruler or authority, we clearly know that's illegitimate. Someone has to be in a recognized representative capacity for them to wield the sword and to divide between good and evil in that respect. But for that exercise to occur within the church, I think similar considerations about the unity of the church, about the way that the church is um, faithful in its actual wielding of this. It's not just wielding it on its own authority. There's a number of things that must be met in order for it to be an effective word. But we should, I think, expect God to act effectively through the words of the church. And so I think at the very least, we should expect exceptional situations within which we do declare curses upon other parties who are the enemies of Christ, that those will arise and that the word of Christ that we appeal and declare, appeal to and declare in those situations will be effective. Yeah, we're kind of reconciling two, well, not exactly extremes, but two things here, aren't we? One is, is that our prayers are are not irrelevant. They're not uh, ineffective. They, these are not things which God just will bring to pass completely independent of our prayer. But then on the other side, we're reconciling that with the fact that our, our prayers don't have this intrinsic power in and of themselves to bring curses upon people outside of what God has um, said he would do. And uh, a very clear sort of scriptural um, uh, model of that is, is Revelation 8, I guess, where um, these prayers of, of the saints are, are seen arising before God's throne uh, and, and collected by the angels. And, and then they result in um, in curses coming upon uh, creation on, on, on those who have persecuted God's people. So it, there is the um, the efficacy um, of the prayer, but obviously um, efficacious in light of what God has said he will do by means of prayer. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Alistair has put it in the context of binding and loosing, which is, that's a different kind of speech act than prayer. Uh, if the church declares somebody excommunicate, that is in fact performative, that the church says it and that makes it so. And I, I don't think you were drawing, Alistair, a, a direct connection between kind of disciplinary statements and and uh, curses but more more some kind of an analogy between those where it's not just an appeal but it's a it does have this performative more of a performative aspect to it Is, did i did i understand you right yeah so if you're delivering someone to satan for instance there is a um some i don't know imprecatory character to that it's interesting though that even they're wielding the keys of the kingdom uh revealing who does and does not belong to God and, and declaring it uh, through the ministry of the gospel and, and the administration of the sacraments. It, it is a setting outside. It's a, it's a marking the boundaries of the covenant community, but uh, in, in the New Testament, a delivering over to statement for the destruction of the flesh. So even there, the sort of pronouncement that is made in binding and loosing and in wielding the keys of the kingdom by the church uh, is one that is, yes, oriented toward a kind of judgment, but a judgment that results in the restoration of the sinner. It's identifying the status of the sinner uh, before God, 
by placing him outside of the covenant community, which is where he already exists. And it is an offering him over to the devil, uh, ultimately so that he might be restored and return. On that particular passage, I wonder whether it's appropriate to, or whether we should presume that the flesh that's being destroyed is simply the sinful character of that person so that they might be saved. Rather, it might be that the flesh to be destroyed is that sinner um, who's supposed to be cast out of the community so that the spirit, which is the life of the community itself, might be saved. And the question of whether there are occasions where curses actually lead not to the repentance of the sinner and may not even be aimed primarily at that, but the protection and preservation and restoration of the people of God. Yeah, I think that's it. I agree with that, Alistair. Um, I think that's a really good point. Uh, the, the other side, I was going to say, I think Trevor is also right to emphasize that imprecatory psalms are uh, pleas for God to destroy enemies. But there are two ways for God to destroy enemies. He can destroy enemies by destroying the person who is at enmity with him and with his people. Or he can destroy that person as an enemy so that he can raise him up as a new person. So in the imprecations that we offer to the Lord, then we're leaving that decision in the Lord's hands. And he can he can destroy our enemies in one way or the other uh, as he sees fit. And there I think it's interesting to look at some of the ways that certain curses or judgments in Scripture can be fulfilled in positive ways or um, it can originally take the form of curses that end up mutating, as it were, into blessings. So the way that um, Levi becomes the priestly tribe, even though originally the scattering among Israel is a negative thing, or the way that the Gibeonites are actually saved through a judgment, and they become people of the house, that they're connected to the tabernacle and the temple and its worship. Or we can maybe think about the way that God judges someone like Saul, but in a way that it could turn out to his blessing if he actually recognizes that God has given his successor as his son-in-law, as one who cares about him and who seeks the best of his kingdom. There's no reason in which what is initially presented as a curse is going to be realized in a way that's completely negative for the people at whom it's directed. Likewise, Nineveh being overthrown can be a positive overthrowing. It need not be the overthrowing and judgment. You see that dynamic in many of the Psalms themselves. Uh, Psalm 2 introduces this Davidic figure as the one who shatters the nations, but with this resounding invitation to kiss the sun, lest you perish in the way. And throughout the Psalms, even when there are cries of judgment, there is the possibility and even the hope that God's judgment will instigate a process of repentance that results in, uh, perhaps most explicitly in Psalm 83, uh, the nations who formed a coalition to destroy God's people seeking his name after his theophanic judgment has been revealed among them. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, 
and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.